podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. Welcome to Run With It, the podcast that brings you business ideas from established entrepreneurs. Each episode, you'll hear a new business idea and the exact steps our guest would take to get started. Follow through and you can earn a free mentoring session with today's guest and potentially a business partnership. Here are your hosts, Chris Justin and Ethan Janney. Welcome to Run With It, the podcast that brings you business ideas from established entrepreneurs. Each episode, you'll hear a new business idea and the exact steps our guest would take to get started. Follow through and you can earn a free mentoring session with today's guest and potentially a business partnership. Here are your hosts, Chris Justin and Ethan Janney. I'm Chris Justin. And I'm Ethan Janney. Today on the show, we actually have an interesting situation. Two guests. We'll explain a little bit more later. I'll introduce our first guest. Chris will introduce the second and then we'll get right to it. But our first guest is Sam Davidson. He has a passion for taking ideas and turning them into reality. His journey in entrepreneurship began over 13 years ago. In 2006, Sam co-founded Cool People Care, which connected people online in a world before Twitter and Instagram who wanted to make a difference with nonprofit organizations who badly needed members, volunteers, donors, and supporters. More recently, in 2013, Davidson co-founded Batch, a gift and retail company whose unique offering allows customers and companies to experience a taste of iconic cities. Overseeing the company's rapid and strategic growth as CEO, Davidson has helped Batch cross the $1 million annual revenue mark in less than two years. Batch is headquartered in Nashville, with operations in Austin and offers gifts from iconic Southern cities. Who else do we have, Chris? We've got Matt Verlinich, who is our expert guest on here today. Matt has an MS in engineering science and mechanics from Pennsylvania State University, also my alma mater. Matt was the founding general manager of Tech Shop Pittsburgh. After helping dozens of individuals start their own businesses at Tech Shop, Matt decided it was time to try and build his own business. Matt then de- prototyped, developed, crowdfunded, mass-produced, and distributed On the Rocks to over 55 countries. On the Rocks is an ice mold system that allows consumers to make crystal clear ice cubes, spheres, and diamonds at home. Now Matt is putting his diverse experience to work for Innovation Works as their manufacturing program associate, where he helps local entrepreneurs build scalable businesses by consulting and connecting them with appropriate manufacturing resources. So welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, I'm going to get us started here. I'll start by just explaining why we have two guests and then get started with Sam. First thing that happened was we contacted Sam to be on the show because of him running Batch and having a successful business there. And in a little bit of a pre-interview, we discovered that the business idea that he was tossing around was something that Matt might actually have some very interesting insight in. Matt is a friend of Chris's. And so we said, hey, why don't we bring everybody on and we can really get even deeper into this idea than we normally would. So what I'd like to start by doing is asking you, Sam, so you've got this business idea. I'm a person who needs it. What is a problem that I have where I really need your new business or product idea? So what I've learned in the last almost six years now, running Batch and working with 300 different small businesses who are located all around the U.S., is there seems to be a problem that a lot of entrepreneurs, and particularly making or manufacturing entrepreneurs, so artisans, some would say, when it comes to scale. Uh, A lot of folks might start with a recipe that belonged in their family for generations. They're certified to produce that initially in their home or in a very small operation, but when they have the chance to scale and to wholesale that to major retailers, to a lot of specialty shops like ours, they just don't have usually the capital and the wherewithal to take that product and really go big with it, go national, go global. There are a couple options right now that sort of tough decisions that entrepreneur has to make. One, they can outsource their recipe to a co-packer. That's a very popular decision, but that could mean that their manufacturing facility is a couple thousand miles away. The other choice that a lot of them face is just to stay small. And so they're really limited and hamstrung by their own access to the facilities that they have to really grow that. And then on top of that, I think the piece that we've seen that is missing is a real chance for community. I think any entrepreneur, whether you make a physical product or you're in the digital space, 
there is a need for community. I think co-working spaces have demonstrated that people want that and need that. But in the manufacturing space, because you're toiling away in a kitchen, in a workshop or somewhere, you lose out on that sense of camaraderie and community because you've got to have physical space, not just for machinery and equipment, but maybe even eventually to store inventory that you've got to distribute. And so the solution, I think the idea to that is something that combines the best that we see in co-working with the best that we see in maker spaces that allows things to be created. But then on top of that, I think you've got a third layer of support services that helps those entrepreneurs start to distribute their goods, start to market their goods, start to really complement and fill in for the skills they don't have. Accounting, bookkeeping, for example. And so you've got a place that they can come and be residents, join. Again, I think we're going to hash out some possible models for that, but that they belong to that allows them to really go with their idea and take it from zero to one to where it exists or one to infinity and really scale their idea in a physical sense since they have different needs than some other entrepreneurs might have. So I think that leads us well into asking ourselves why we have Matt on the show. Uh, Chris, you want to help Matt tell us why he might be integral in this case? So I've known Matt for a long time. We actually studied at Penn State together. And when we first talked with Sam, he was the name that immediately jumped out. I said, regardless of this podcast episode, you need to talk to Matt. Matt is the guy who knows how to get this done. He's not going to sing his own praises too much, but he gave Barack Obama a tour of Tech Shop Pittsburgh back in the day. So he knows what he's talking about. So Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience in Makerspaces? Yes, I had an incredible opportunity. Thank you, Chris, for that generous introduction. But I had this incredible opportunity to open Tech Shop Pittsburgh whenever they opened their Pittsburgh location. It was at the time the sixth location Tech Shop had. They have since gone out of business. So I had this opportunity to watch essentially the rise and fall of Tech Shop and the whole makerspace ecosystem. And it's very much in flux right now with, is it really sustainable? And in what way is it sustainable? Is it sustainable as a for-profit, a non-profit, a B Corp, artist space, shared studios, independent collaborations, I have friends who have just recently started up a couple of different like niche nonprofit type maker spaces in Pittsburgh. While I was with Tech Shop, we experimented with a number of different kind of ancillary service models for incubation space, corporate events, corporate memberships, B2C, like shipping and receiving, almost like a model. We did tons and tons of experiments and I think that, Sam, your idea hits the nail on the head because there are so many people, and even just in this Pittsburgh ecosystem, let alone I had an awesome opportunity to travel across the country and visit a bunch of different makerspaces and see that these ecosystems are everywhere. And they all share this same sort of problem where the people who love to make stuff like to make stuff. And they need a lot of help and support in all of the things that it takes to make a successful business. And a lot of times that support comes best from other entrepreneurs doing it at the same time. And that's where it comes to like building a vibrant community like that is probably one of the best ways to support that ecosystem. Yeah, I I love this idea because I think whenever you can create a system that makes things easier, that people who have these products, there's no reason for them to figure it all out on their own when it's going to be the same issues that come up for everyone. Sure, you might have candles or you might have candied bacon or whatever else that you've got. And those have their own quirks to them. But as far as going through a manufactured goods process, you're going to run into the same roadblocks. And if you have an organization that can head that off, that could be the difference between your business succeeding or not. Yeah, and I think it's great to hear Matt's perspective on that because I think the other piece, while they're currently, there's sort of two categories of these maker spaces or artist spaces. And one tends to be, the dividing line tends to be food and non-food. And so you've got in most places, you have commercial kitchens because the other thing that complicates this is that state law varies. While the FDA regulates a lot of food production and shipment, state law is usually on top of that, defining either in terms of volume, and that can be sales volume or weight that once you start producing over a certain amount, you've got to use certain facilities if you want to be able to wholesale. And again, some makers have to think, do I want to wholesale? 
or do I just want to retail and set up a booth in an Etsy shop or distribute through Amazon or whatever that might be? And so because of that, usually these spaces stay separate because the food people do the food thing because of all the regulations and inspections that have to happen. And then folks who are woodworking or making furniture, art will be in a separate space because it's usually less, fewer hoops to jump through. And so usually those folks stay separate, even though they do have a lot in common. So that's why I think you've got a lot of need here, but also it can be a pretty tough thing to navigate because of some of the differences that food presents versus non-food. And that's just food that is shelf stable, not even food that needs to be refrigerated or stay frozen. Things like cheeses and ice creams and things like that. So Matt, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what a collaborative work makerspace could look like that addresses that point that Sam just brought up. Yeah, I think something that I've seen happens a lot is people try to build the ultimate solution to the problem immediately out the gate. And when you're talking about a big collaborative space like that, that's a massive capital expenditure to try to kind of build to suit this potential ecosystem. What we've seen is that when you're trying to build a community space, the most important thing is to build the grassroots community first and then scale the space needs as that community grows. Another aspect of that too is you want to maintain a vibrant and collaborative community. And so having people that aren't competitors to one another, then they can really maintain that sort of relationship and vibrancy of collaboration by sharing things that are maybe subtly different, like food versus furniture goods. There's a lot that they can share in common without ever becoming competitive to one another, just in terms of, you know, both need to be protected when it comes to shipping. Depending on how dense it is, you might need to consider volume-based shipping versus weight-based shipping and how are you packaging it, things like that. So they can learn a lot from one another. That would be my take, my advice to people when they're trying to start a collaborative space like that is to always don't ask yourself, what are all the things that we need in order to develop our silver bullet solution, but rather what is the absolute minimum we can get away with to get started and then grow from there? Because you'll never be able to identify every little nook and cranny of this design and space and workflow and how do you get materials in and out, and refrigeration and power needs and all of that kind of stuff first go around. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Matt, in terms of anybody could run with this idea and it would immediately be so giant that the infrastructure and the capital needs would just be impossible, I think. And I think that's a good point because I think what we've seen when it comes to folks who are making a physical good that what they start with is rarely what they end up with because they'll realize, like you pointed out in terms of shipping, that gosh, if I change my jar size, I can be more efficient in the ingredients I buy and I can save on shipping when I ship the end product to the consumer or the retailer or whatever that is. So uh, I think that's very sound advice because there are so many things. It's just like iterating an app. I mean, once people start using it, enjoying it, or once you get into the regular mechanics of manufacturing You'll see what all changes, not to mention just the advances that happen in general when it comes to manufacturing. A quick story, one of our best-selling products is a jam that a guy makes here in Nashville. And he recently upgraded his system where he can now output 1,000 cases, so 12,000 jars a day, which is, I think, behind his monthly volume at this point. But he, for whatever reason, <laughs> invested the capital in that capability in the hopes of growing. But in the meantime, he can backfill and that line doesn't have to stay dormant because he can manufacture for other folks or they can come in and manufacture but use his infrastructure to fill jars of the same size. And so he didn't build a thing to fill every jar that ever exists, but just his jar. And if you happen to fit into that, so be it and everybody wins. So I think uh, allowing space to grow and to know that how you start is not how you're going to end up, then you'll be smarter when you start this concept, whatever that first step looks like. Well, first, just a great observation to make here. I mean, this is one of, first of all, the value of like what we're trying to offer here is this kind of thought process of starting something. So it's always great to deal with someone who's been through the failures and the successes already. It's literally like you're a year or two ahead of the game. And so we could have just been having this conversation with Sam and we could have come up with like all these 
you know, genius ideas. And Matt could have been listening to the show afterwards and say, no, that wouldn't work and that wouldn't work and that wouldn't work. <laughs> so it's really great to have you exactly here. Given where the idea is at right now, just with what we talked about, Sam, what would be like a customer experience here, you know, as the solution would present it to them? You can project down the line. It doesn't have to be in the beginning when you're starting out, but like, yeah, what are they getting out of, out of the system? So I think, yeah, what the user, what the customer in this case is getting out of the system, I think first, which is something that Chris said, was the idea of community, this idea that people need to be near one another. So at a base minimum, they've got a place where they can show up, meet, see, be around other entrepreneurs facing similar problems. I think that's number one. I think number two, then, they've got access to professional services, we'll call them. And so that can be a network of experts that helps them where they're weak. We see that a lot with things like financials or technology related to inventory, bookkeeping, things like that, legal, branding, marketing. That's really where we see folks because these are, are passionate makers, but they cannot make a label that's appealing to save their life and sit on a shelf and develop some brand identity. So I think that that's a part of it. And whether that's in-house, that these are you as the owner of this thing can provide those services, or you've got relationships where you're able to vet and farm that out. Because with that also comes mentorship. And so, yes, you can connect to someone who's currently in the trenches as well. But then also, if you've got a great ecosystem of people who have been in the trenches, whether they still are or not, but can offer some guidance, whether that's how to get a major distribution deal with a national retailer or how to navigate selling on a channel like Walmart or Amazon or something major as well. And then the third piece that I would add would be that access to facilities, to making and distributing facilities. And so whether that's a kitchen or tools to do really high quality woodwork, and then everything to get your raw goods in and your finished goods out. And so the number of makers that we hear from that could do a lot more, a lot better, save money, improve margin, if they just had access to a truck dock, but they're building where they are, just check the trailer, can't pull up. And so the fees associated with that Mm -hmm. or how they've got to compensate for that. So some of that is very, very simple without having to sink a hundred grand into a commercial kitchen or some state-of-the-art production equipment is just also keeping those pieces in mind. So to me, those are sort of the three things you get, whether those become three tiers of membership or who knows what, but I think you've got to at least offer some, not all at once, but some element of each of those to make it appealing. One challenge, I guess, that could potentially come to mind is the people who are creating businesses like this or have some product, they're generally creative, they're entrepreneurial. What would you say to those people who don't feel like they need to have some sort of structure in place? They know the right answers, right? They want to be autonomous. That's why they became an entrepreneur. And maybe Matt, you've seen this happen or Sam, either one of you can take this. Uh, How do you convince those people that something like this would really save them time, money, and hassle. You want to go first, Matt? Sure. I think in my experience, that was one of the things that was very interesting to observe in these kind of maker and co-working spaces is there's different kind of archetypes of businesses and people. So from the perspective of the co-working space or this shared makerspace type facility, the customer they're oftentimes I bucketed them into kind of artists and artisans. And a lot of the times those businesses are run by people who have an enormous passion for producing the goods. And they have very little interest in business development and scaling and the least of all bookkeeping and logistics and all of like the minutia of the logistics of fulfilling and growing a business. There was another bucket of kind of people who I thought of in my mind as entrepreneurs, and they are the people who are not as married to the product itself as they are into the idea of it, the mission. They are developing a business, and they're trying to figure out what can I do here in order to scale this. And those people tend to scale up and out of the space, whereas the artisans tend to reside in the space forever. This kind of goes back to what Sam was saying about the people who end up staying small because it's all they care about. I think those people have a huge potential to become bigger 
if they were connected with the right kind of partner, co-founder, collaborator, or mentors or infrastructure that can kind of push them into a hybrid between that artist, artisan, and more entrepreneurial mindset. The entrepreneurs can kind of shift back by being cross-collaborating, cross-pollinating with the artisans to see like, can we put a little more artistry into this that we're doing, a little more care and concern? And then the third kind of group that I've seen in all these maker spaces, shared spaces, the hobbyists and or the looky-loos, as you might call it, like the people who are just like dipping their toe in the water, they're doing it for fun. They don't really have an ambition of turning this into a business. And people are constantly like flexing between these groups or falling somewhere in this like spectrum between in, in my mind. And so one of the cool aspects of designing the space and the community and the infrastructure around it is your ability to influence people's inspiration or motivation to flex between those kind of different zones. What would you say the percentage breakdown is between those three groups? That I think depends tremendously on your pricing model, your space, your amenities, how do you communicate it to the customers? How are you sourcing and finding your customers, your members, so to speak? When it was at Tech Shop, I would say that it was probably 60, 75% hobbyists. And then, you know, 12, 15% artists and artisans and roughly a, an equivalent amount of entrepreneurs. And then that was also different depending on the location. So in Pittsburgh, we had more artists and artisans than the Bay Area did. The Bay Area stores had far more entrepreneurs who were prototyping like products that they never intended to mass produce within the space. They were just trying to get investment and then move out of the space. It sounded like to me, Sam, you wanted to target more of the entrepreneurs or did you want to target the artisans and convince them to be entrepreneurs? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it could go either way. I do think that this idea is built more for the folks who want to scale in some form. And so they are at least serious about getting their financial house in order and understanding the metrics of their business, as opposed to the person who paints whenever inspiration strikes and they'll do a gallery show and that's all they ever want to do. Yeah, this is definitely for someone who either has had some success and they want to really go to the next level, meaning that they want to hit such a volume that they can't produce it where they currently are, which is either a, a shared worker space where you sign up for four hours and you go in there and you cook or you make and you leave or they're in their house and they're about to, for their own sanity, they got to get out of there and start making somewhere else. Or it could be for the person who is still pre-production, but knows they want to scale, knows they've got something good. And so they might just show up with a jar of salsa and say, look, I make this at home. I bring it to work. Everybody loves it take it for Christmas. The family loves it. I got to make this thing, but I don't know how to go from this couple jars I make at home to global domination and the next salsa king. And so this is a space they could go and say, I don't know what to call it. I don't know how to sell it. I don't, they don't know how to do any of it, but they're willing to put it in the hands of experts who can take it to that level. And so again, part of that right now is they are cobbling those things together and they could have success. But this concept we're talking about could get them success, I think, much more quickly. I think, again, going back to that community aspect, I think Matt's categorizations are perfect because you could have hobbyists or looky-loos who end up seeing and networking with entrepreneurs and thinking, gosh, I at least want to try that or do that. If not hand it over, I can maybe become one of them after hearing their story and seeing their success. So I think that can be some of that byproduct where the community does the convincing as opposed to me, if I own this concept, convincing someone to scale, I found that's very hard because, again, we've worked with folks who just decide to stay small, either as a lifestyle choice or just from a standpoint of risk. They don't want to put the risk required under the current model. Yeah, that's a great observation, too, is like that community. Oftentimes, what I've seen is when people flex significantly between one of those kind of archetypes, it's largely because they've met somebody else within the space who have a totally different skill set or experience. And then they kind of pursue this together and it takes on almost a new life because they've found that complementary, that team aspect to it. And that's one of the things that a lot of like solo entrepreneurs that I know struggle with working in isolation so much because then they don't even know where to begin to go to find somebody with a complementary skill set. And it just happens in places like this. 
Yeah, that's great. And partnerships can be so, so much more productive than working in isolation. Sure. You touched upon this, Matt, and I think it's, it's worth just, you know, as we proceed along here, one of our next questions is kind of around the value of the solution and how much a customer would pay and why. And in some respects, those are sort of two different questions, right? The value of the solution, of course, if somebody starts like a large scale business distributing their salsa or something, I mean, it could be worth quite a bit in terms of what they get out of it, hundreds of thousands of dollars, who knows? But then on the other end of it, just, you know, what are people willing to pay? You know, there's risk at play even when you're starting a business or if you're a hobbyist, it's going to turn into an entrepreneur. You've probably actually seen the actual numbers. Matt as well. So what are we thinking guys in terms of like the revenue coming in? I'll punt this to Sam first because I do have like some serious numbers behind this. It was, I lived it and breathed it. But Yeah. So are you talking about in terms of what would someone pay for this concept to be a member of it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for whatever part of it, is it like a monthly membership fee? If it is, how much would it be? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So my assumption would be that, yes, you would pay something to belong and it could be a tiered structure based on which services you're using. Again, I think because in my mind, this is, these are folks producing, maybe even storing and distributing physical goods. Some of that's going to be on a per square footage space. How much the square feet of warehouse are they using? How many hours are they using in the kitchen or maker space? So yeah, that would be my assumption would be that they would pay a fee for service and you'd have membership contracts and things like that. The one sort of potential opportunity would be, again, for that person who comes in kind of pre-launch, pre-concept, if there is a opportunity or a community of people or services that can help him take his salsa from his kitchen to the world, Mm -hmm. then there could be something deeper in terms of the opportunity that either the space or the owner of this says, look, yeah, I can't give you $50,000 to go hire a branding firm and legal and financial, but we've got those in house here. So instead of me, right, I can't write you that check, but you know, we're going to get 15% of this thing because the dream we're all agreeing on is that you sell this to uh, craft one day or whatever that might be. So there's that potential, but that is a, I mean, it's nearly a different model just in terms of how you vet that, what you invest in, what all you're giving to that. But again, if you've got this ecosystem of people who do want to scale and go big, then I think there's a chance for kind of points on the back end based on what the exit is for the folks who really want to scale big time. Yeah, I have some numbers I'm thinking. Do you have any actual numbers as far as dollar amounts? I have some I'll throw out if you don't have anything concrete. No, I have nowhere to start. Obviously, I know Matt's the expert on that. So Matt, I, I just want to throw my guesses in there to see if I have any legs on my thoughts. So I'm thinking clearly like 50 to $250 a month is on the range of like a co-working space, right? So you got a desk or you got a few days or you got you know, unlimited access to a co-working space. So I'm guessing you could get at least 250 to 250 per person, depending on their involvement for a monthly fee. And then you mentioned 15% of a business. For some reason, in my mind, you know, especially maybe because people might be a little bit wary of giving a lot of their business away from the start, I was thinking more like five or 10%. But if 15%, I mean, honestly, if you're going to come in and you're going to handle my bookkeeping and my expansion and my distribution and all that stuff, it may even be worth more than 15%. Maybe it's the type of thing where the percentage changes as time goes by. You know, we start with like 5% and then things are going well. It looks like we're moving towards 15 or something like that. Yeah. And I will say on the commercial kitchen side, and it varies by market, just like real estate prices do, but commercial kitchens can sometimes rent for up to a hundred bucks an hour. And so based on what your manufacturing and your food production schedule wow. needs to be, some folks can make what they need for the month in four hours. No big deal. Some folks, right. if, it's, if it's fresher, they need to go every Monday for longer. And so Nashville, I know, has both nonprofit kitchens and for-profit kitchens. And so those fees can range widely. If you go ahead and say, hey, I'm going to do four hours every Monday, then they can discount that hourly rate. But on the kitchen side, because you're using so much space and because it's usually exclusive, unlike co-working where you can have a bunch of people popping down on couches and desks, a kitchen, it's usually one person that can use mm-hmm. that dedicated space at a time because you, based on what you're making, there can be cross-contamination. Again, the food side of things really complicates a lot of this. So if you do have that aspect, I know from the food side, that's something to think about from a financial model. And just from something that you may actually have experience with, like, let's say I do start a salsa business and I, it grows to a reasonable level. What kind of revenue do people get out of a you know, like a single food product like that. So yeah, I know 
one woman that she has sells, well, now she has two, but one SKU. So it's an energy bar company. Now she's been around 20 years, but she's doing nearly all of her revenue is wholesale and she's doing close to 4 million a year gross. And so that's just with a single SKU. And like I said, now she's recently added another flavor to that. And so that's a single thing that said that retails at three bucks a unit and wholesales for half that. So she's moving a lot of volume at that. So I think I know other folks who have gotten to be on QVC and sell their biscuit mix on there. So, I mean, I think it's reasonable to think that even if you've got three or four, say, salsa varieties in this case, and you're wholesaling for four bucks, retailing for eight a jar, again, it's sort of that specialty category. I think it's reasonable to think that you would could be at you know, six figures in, again, just top line revenue. And then on the manufacturing side, based on everything from packaging to distribution, your margins... Well, probably your net operating margin shooting for somewhere to that 10 to 20%, I think would be a good goal on that. And again, what we're seeing is this is just the food side. So not, not talking about home goods like candles and other things like that, is that if you want to hit that specialty retailer, that's much different than the grocery. And so the grocery, you're trying to sell barbecue sauce for three bucks a jar. Specialty, you're trying to get 12 bucks a jar So for 16 ounces. So there's so much variety in there. And usually the difference is in ingredients, but it's just packaging. It's image. And just because I can ask a stupid question, because maybe our listeners will make use of it, a net operating margin, what exactly is that? So yes, I mean, some people call that, you know, EBITDA. So basically what your total profit is at the end of the year. So okay. I think food manufacturing, again, it's still a range, 10 to 20%. So if you sell a million, you're walking home with a hundred in profit. Got it. But based on how you structure that, if you paying yourself beforehand or you're only waiting to get paid at the end of the year. Again, everybody's kind of different in how they want to structure that. But Thank um, you. that could be a good thing, I think, to shoot for. Matt, I can see that in your face that you're chomping at the bit to answer the question about <laughs> the payment structure for a co-working space here. So go for it. Yeah. Before we move on to that, I just wanted to touch on the last thing that Sam just said there. That's like That's such useful information that is so difficult to find, but it comes out so easily in these kind of shared spaces, especially mm-hmm. shared around an industry. And just like that's those little tidbits are like the things that create so much value in a community space like that, especially when people are working in related industries. So incredibly valuable. To come back to like the whole pricing model and strategy, that's something that's really interesting. Like Chris, when you asked me before what the breakdown of the kind of users of the space like that are, and I said, right out the gate, it's dependent on how you market it, how you brand it, where you put it, and what you charge. So I've seen everything from like pay what you can type of sponsored spaces where they're funded, they're a nonprofit and they're funded by some sort of funding agency that is looking to have a social impact. And so you pay nothing. Anywhere up to Third Ward used to have memberships in Brooklyn that was $500 a month. And that's relative to different market forces. And like Sam was saying, real estate prices and different market realities. Tech Shop was an interesting case because they really tried to force the exact same, not only capabilities, but pricing model across all of these different markets. And what we saw as a result of that was that it tapped out like rapidly within approximately 12 months, plus or minus six months, every single tech shop that opened hit a membership plateau and it never changed. And so it was purely dictated by the price that you assigned to the membership. And so for most of the time that I was there, the price was $125 a month. And that was too expensive for a huge swath of the market, like the hobbyists. So it kind of precluded a lot of people, but then it was too cheap for a lot of the entrepreneurs, the serious business owners who were using that space because they got access to a 17,000 square foot space that they could essentially have run of the full place at $125 a month. And if that would have taken off in a big serious way, it would have only taken a couple dozen serious businesses to completely overwhelm and take over the whole space. But that never really happened. And it was always this delicate kind of balancing act. And so I think that, I mean, there's an optimal answer for every single space as it's branded, as it goes. So there is no single answer. The answer is you have to really keep track of your data, know who your customers are, stay in touch with them, make sure you know what they need 
and charging accordingly. Another thing that we've kind of touched on, like Sam was talking about the $100 an hour for some kitchens, some are nonprofit, some are for-profit. That's one thing that's very interesting. We would get all of the time at Tech Shop. How much is it to rent the table saw per hour? <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 that's not how this works. <laughs> it's like a gym. It's a monthly membership. <laughs> they're like, why? Why the hell would you do that? I just want to use the table saw for an hour. <laughs> Like, I just want to do sorry. crunches on the crunch machine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's something that you kind of run into. And the answer is really difficult to explain to people is when you have a monthly membership model for a place like that, just by having that, you're deliberately trying to encourage a month to month membership type community, almost like a subscription box in a way too, where the name of the game is retention. And can you build and foster a community of people that find real value on an ongoing basis that stick around versus turn and burn? And finding that right pricing model is also like super interesting and tricky. If you look into another industry that relies heavily on membership models is just the gym industry. There's like the Planet Fitness on the far low side and it's, you know, super cheap. Most people don't show up. You rely on all of the people who don't show up to subsidize the memberships of the really active small users that doesn't build like a real solid community and ecosystem. So that wouldn't be suitable for this type of entrepreneurial community. That's trying to bring itself up by collaborating amongst one another. But then on the opposite side of that, there's, you know, CrossFit gyms, which are 125, 250 more a month. And their membership sizes are not 10,000 per gym. They're, you know, maybe a hundred or a couple hundred or in some cases even smaller. But they're people who go to barbecues together. They like hang out all the time. It's a ridiculously tight knit and avid community that's always there, you know, five times a week. But does that pricing model preclude a lot of people from being able to use that space? It does. But that's the inevitabilities and the realities of how do you size and price this kind of business and what amenities do you focus on? Like CrossFit gym's not going to have your crunch machine, Ethan. Sorry. <laughs> I want to put a coin in for every crunch. <laughs> so one question that maybe you can answer specifically around the pricing, Matt, would be how much revenue does an average makerspace need to draw in per month? That is a very good question. So it depends on all of the types of choices of where and how it's. So Tech Shop was put in largely retail environments. So they were paying in a lot of locations like $20 a square foot, $25 a square foot or more just to be where they were. And in my opinion, that was a poor decision that they never really understood who their target customer was. Because, you know, two doors down from us at Tech Shop was Anthropology, And so Anthropology was relying on a certain type of walk-in customer to be successful. And they were there before us and they're there still. <laughs> the type of people who were going into Anthropology were not the type of people looking for a table saw or a welder or a water jet. And so that put our monthly expenses at around 100 grand a month. Mm -hmm. And, and a large portion of it going just towards the rent. It was approximately 40%, 40 to 50% of that was rent. Mm -hmm. And then another 40 to 50% of that, depending, you know, flexing stuff up and around, was staff. So another core tenant of Tech Shop was that we would have dream consultants there who were responsible for trying to build up and shepherd the customer journey of the people who were coming into the space. And so that was a huge burden of expense for the place, but it didn't bring in new customers. It was only there to retain the customers that were there. So with a customer basis and a community that plateaued 12 months in and was not nearly enough to cover the operating budget of the place, and then you're carrying month to month this expensive staff, even if they retained 100% of the people, it was destined to fail without some tweak to that business model. We've got a few more questions on topic, but I'm wondering, like, I'm almost like, I don't know about you, Chris, like we could start to transition into like, what would the steps be to start to check this idea out? I've got some ideas percolating, but maybe 
I don't know if Sam or Matt has ideas. Now we're talking to our listeners. They're going to go out there for like two weeks, three weeks. They're going to try to put something in order that's going to prove that they have something that's got a good direction, potentially prove some type of profitability and, you know, prove there's some kind of action taker that you might like to work with. Any thoughts on that kind of process? Yeah, I think one really playing off what Matt just said about this membership kind of breakdown, if you will. So again, I think he did a great job in talking about the kind of rough categories of people in terms of how serious they are, let's say about scaling their business. Then I think once you understand that, I think the question would be, how many of these people are actually out there where I am? Because I think a city like Nashville might be different than Silicon Valley, different than Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so really understanding how many people are out there who need this idea. And the other thing I think that helps with is understanding how many of these services they need. Again, like Matt said earlier, you could build something that would just be completely massive and do absolutely everything. But there would be 1% of your membership is using so much of these things you built out that it's not getting the return that you need on that investment. And so to me, the first part is some sort of comprehensive market survey, market study, we would call it. The first question is, what does my city currently have like this? And so, oh, there's this makerspace, there's this hobby place, there's this commercial kitchen, there's this co-working. And then seeing who's there and what's missing from those offerings. So, you know, WeWork is missing any ability to manufacture, for example. And then finding the people who would need a space like this. And then based on where you are, Based on what the cost would be, since a lot of your money sounds like could go to rent, it's understanding how many people, that minimum viable number, how many people would have to join this to make this thing even have a shot at working. 50, mm-hmm. 100, 500, I don't know. I think it would vary by city and how big that space needs to be. So there's this little dance you're trying to do with what can I offer that's going to interest the most amount of people? And then how many of those people would actually have to buy in for those services that I can actually stand to offer? One idea that comes to mind, a very tangible action would be to find the mat in your city, right? Find the yeah. person who's had experience doing that, who runs a makerspace in that area, the operations guy or girl, and talk to them about what they're seeing. You can probably get a lot of these questions answered. And Matt, tell me if, if someone were to approach you, we don't want to blow you up here. <laughs> so we're, we're not going to have everyone. Listeners, if this homework assignment isn't call Matt and, and ask a few questions. <laughs> Uh, you got to do it in your local area. But if a local person were to come to you and ask you those type of questions, would that be something that you'd be accessible to answer? Yeah, I would be happy to. It's something I still believe that this is such a, these types of spaces, I think, are such an incredible value to any community that I think that everybody wins from setting up a space like that. And I would love to help answer those questions for people. I think to Sam's point, that's you're saying the same thing, Chris, where it's like it's market research, market validation. So what you would do finding me would be like tech shop would be kind of a competitor to what the product the you know, the business that you're trying to develop is. And just because it's defunct or it's in a slightly different industry, there's still valuable knowledge you can glean from that and then apply to your particular concept. So one side is getting the information from other maker spaces out there. The other side that comes to mind is building up the community, right? And maybe that's you create a Facebook group or maybe you go to some meetup events and you start trying to create that community and just, you know, drum up interest. Maybe you have the potential to pre-sell some memberships, but I think that you have to service both sides there, both on the experience of the um, makerspace and also the community. Absolutely. Yeah, I think for some of that on the potential customer side, I mean, go to your local farmer's market. Go to a neighborhood festival or you know, mm. something that where they yeah. have artisans with booths selling things and just ask them where they're currently manufacturing and making, where they wish they could do that. And I think you just start compiling that list. Because when we started Batch six years ago, that's the first thing we did is we went to these markets and fairs and festivals and just met people who were selling stuff and got their info and told them that we were starting a retail company. We wanted to sell their stuff. And so it'd be the same thing where you're trying to provide them services, but they exist in your town, no matter how big a city you're in. If you're listening to this, they exist. You just got to go to where they are because they don't have a shingle. They don't have their own store. You can't look them up in the phone book. You could maybe Google them, but 
uh, again, they're busy making and, and trying to the hustle and sell their own stuff. So you got to yeah. go find them. One other aspect of this whole concept, which is interesting, is Tech Shop was largely, for the most part, the majority of the business was a B2C business. We were looking for individual customers who then might want to start a business. If you design this space around people who already have businesses, businesses are a lot easier to find yeah. than consumers because they're out there trying to do business. They want to be found. Mm-hmm. So like, that's exactly what Sam's saying is go to the farmer's market. Right. That's where they are. <laughs> you can make a list. You can count them. You can figure out exactly how many of a certain type of businesses in your area in a day. I'm feeling like a combination of all the things that have been on the table, especially inspired by some things that you said earlier, Matt, about how and what you just said, Chris, in that, you know, it starts with the community and, you know, masterminds can be a very powerful thing for people, especially if they have the right people as co like in the mastermind with them. And depending on the mastermind, sometimes they're run by an expert or someone who can help everyone and sort of guide things and oversee things. So I'm imagining like if you can get people to, and people will pay for those masterminds depending on what they expect to get out of it. So let's say you started by, you picked, selected a neighborhood you want to go in where you think there's a high proportion of makers in a specific area. Let's say it's food manufacturing kind of stuff where there's like a farmer market weekly. I lived in Brooklyn. So this all seems like you started in Brooklyn and you mentioned third ward, of course. So you start in my old neighborhood in Brooklyn. You meet people at the farmer's market and at the fair, you know, the fairs and things like that that are going on. And you say, hey, I've got this guy, Sam Davidson. (laughs) that's got Matt and they are going to run a mastermind and only to people in this geographical area. And they're going to guide you towards like turning your product into an actual business or whatever. Right. But you pay, it's a monthly fee. On top of that, the whole eye is that you're part of an audience that we're trying to gear a makerspace towards. I'm almost seeing like they're already paying for the mastermind. They think it's worth it. You're giving them valuable advice. They're on the right trajectory, but they're also chomping at the bit about this exciting idea that a makerspace is going to develop that is tailored towards them, you know, and the whole thing could start with just like a group of five people who it could be lucrative just starting with that and having income and paying people for advice and maybe setting, you know, a portion of that revenue aside for that makerspace that's going to be made and also letting people know when it's coming, you're going to pay a monthly fee. And I'm guessing there's somebody just waiting to get XYZ machine or just waiting to get a truck where they can pull up a truck and have a delivery or whatever. And they know how much it's going to cost them to do it on their own. And you say, oh, we're going to set it up. So it's just a monthly fee. And they're going to be like, yes, 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 yes. When, 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 when. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's, that's a really interesting point. It's a great observation, Ethan. That's actually how most of the most successful spaces that came of the makerspace concept, the shared like co-working space concept, they start with a core group of people who have so much passion around this idea that they just look around this small group and say, okay, what do you need? What do you need? We need, let's rent a garage buy those tools, donate those tools. You have the table saw, you have this drill press, we'll put it in the same space, work together. And that starts this kernel of a community that then just continues to grow and grow from there. And that also shapes the community based on its own needs. So Tech Shop blew up because it started in Palo Alto and it attracted a small group of entrepreneurs so one of the early success stories out of Tech Shop was actually Square. Mm. The credit card swipe device was prototyped in the original first Tech Shop location. Wow. And then it grew That's up really to cool. be a $4 billion company. <laughs> at the last time that I ever looked at it. But that's one of the funny parts is like people would always ask us and say, oh, did you get any equity in that? And it was like, no, they weren't set up to do any equity in that. So it could have been a huge opportunity, which could have saved the whole thing, but it also could totally twist the mission of the company. And it's important to kind of understand that. And I think James McKelvey was one of the co-founders who did a lot of the prototyping in the original Palo Alto location. He was from St. Louis. And so right near the end of Tech Shop's time, he was instrumental in pooling together a group of people in St. Louis who got a tech shop to move to St. Louis, his hometown. So while Tech Shop never really got any equity in Square, 
it did kind of spawn some like genesis of growth for the company. And it's tough to connect those dots whenever they're not like straight equity and return on investment type stuff. But that's just a decision that you'd have to make in growing a space like this. I think that's a beautiful place to start wrapping up here. We took this big idea and we kind of narrowed it down into something that people can bootstrap, which is exactly what we want our listeners to get started with, right? If you only have a few weeks in order to show some progress, impress Sam, impress Matt, these are some of the actions you can take. And, and they're exactly the actions that we would take to get this going. So they're worthwhile to pursue, follow through on them, send us an email with what you've done to update at runwithit.fm. We're going to go through and pick out some listeners that really impressed us with the actions that they took. And we'll connect you with Sam and with Matt. You'll get some advice from them and a possible business partnership with these guys. So, you know, that's a very powerful opportunity available to you guys just for being listeners. Follow through, take some action and report back to us. Want to circle back with you guys before we end up here. Sam, do you have any plugs you'd like to share? Where can people find out more about you? Anything else you'd like to add to the podcast? Yeah, they can find out more about me personally and my experience as an entrepreneur at my website, samdavidson.net. But then, of course, they can check out batchusa.com to see what all we do, what all we sell, all the different makers that we've been working with the last six years. Great. And Matt? I need to get a personal website. But if you uh, catch the spelling of my name from the title of this, I'm the only one in the world. So, you know, in this day and age, you can find out pretty much my entire life history online by Googling that. <laughs> but my uh, like the it. website for my business is clearice.rocks, R-O-C-K-S, not R-O-X. Not that kind of website. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Very cool. cool. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. I feel like this was a masterclass all about <laughs> makerspaces, which is really interesting. I'm sure we could dive in a hundred times over on several of these questions, but I think it's a good taste for our listeners and looking forward listeners to whatever actions you guys take and email us at update at runwithit.fm and we'll see you next week. Great to meet you, Sam and Ethan. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. You too. Now, it's time for you to run with it. Follow through on the action steps discussed and email a summary of what you did to update at runwithit.fm. Every listener who emails us will gain exclusive access to a private Facebook group of action takers. And one listener will earn a free mentoring session with today's guest and potentially a business partnership. Help us build the Run With It community of generous entrepreneurs. Please like, subscribe, and review us online. And remember, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. It's time for you to run with it. Follow through on the action steps discussed and email a summary of what you did to update at runwithit.fm. Every listener who emails us will gain exclusive access to a private Facebook group of action takers. And one listener will earn a free mentoring session with today's guest and potentially a business partnership. Help us build the Run With It community of generous entrepreneurs. Please like, subscribe, and review us online. And remember, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. Podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash run, that's R-U-N, and get 15% off your first year.